0: It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Thanks, David. Welcome
1: back to the podcast, everyone. We appreciate you downloading us and giving us a listen as we talk about week lucky number 13 of the 2015 Division Three football season. That's the podcast for November 30th of 2015 and it was lucky 13 for eight teams as least at least as we finally got the playoffs we were looking for Uh, a little bit of excitement some drama uh, less snow in round two but a lot more competitiveness on the field Keith
2: yeah round two was certainly a better slate of games both on paper and in actuality than round one was uh, the Whitewater-Wheaton game didn't deliver the dramatic finish we'd hoped for, but we got everything we hoped for on Thomas Moore-Wabash and Johns Hopkins-Wesley. And now the final eight we're left with uh, might not be exactly the best eight teams in the country, but it's pretty close. Uh, A lot of familiar teams and teams that are familiar with each other. I think where we stand with these eight are teams that are each capable of Salem with maybe an exception of a team or two. These are eight of the nation's best teams this year and the most prominent programs every year. In a way, a whole new tournament starts now. We know we won't have Mount Union and Whitewater face off in Salem this year, but they might play an alliance. Uh, And whoever makes it from the other side of the bracket uh, will be a program with Stag Bowl experience. The two programs still alive that haven't been to the Stag Bowl, and they're both on the the Mountain Union-Whitewater side, they've been national semifinalists, Uh, Wisconsin Oshkosh in 2012 and Wesley last season and several seasons before that. I'm sure I've said this before, but we go into the quarterfinals not knowing who will win it all, and that's about all the intrigue we can ask for.
1: Yeah, in fact, uh, just looking at the list of the teams who are in there, if we go back to the usual suspects formula that uh, Gordon Mann put together and we threw out for the Elite Eight uh, this round, the quarterfinals back in 2013, well, it's right in line. The uh, The formula then, well let's see we've got mountain union in wisconsin whitewater mary harden baylor and wesley uh they're four of the uh super regulars st thomas is the last miac team standing uh and then let's see uh you know the wild card this year there's always a wild card in the group that would probably be oshkosh uh and there's no east underdog or any uh east underdog is left in that label so we have wabash there instead and talking about wabash that leads us into game balls, and uh, I'm going to give my game ball to, uh, well, who else? I guess I, I pretty much teased it already. Ethan Burrish with the play that saved Wabash's season, the uh, 75-yard game-winning fumble return for a touchdown in overtime. Uh, we're going to have Adam Turr on the podcast to talk about this later, but until then, here's Wabash coach Eric Rayburn's take.
0: You know, uh, honestly, uh, he, makes, he makes plays like that all the time, uh, I think he had uh two huge touchdowns one last year in the hampton sydney game when you know it was early in the game and that it really got us a, all the momentum on our side uh that one i think he picked off a screen uh in the second round playoffs last year you know uh his, his it was actually his brother who blocked the field goal attempt and he picked it up and ran in for a touchdown against whitewater so uh and then today so he i mean obviously he's uh we've had great history with his family but uh He's, he's making a uh, pretty good name for himself.
2: Uh, for my game ball, uh, James Okiki, the Wesley wide receiver, had nine catches, 249 yards and two touchdowns against Johns Hopkins. And he was the difference in a game of otherwise evenly matched and very similarly styled teams on Saturday in Baltimore. Some of the catches Okiki made, uh, they were just ridiculously athletic, and he's a player that if you aren't familiar, get familiar, because when Joe Callahan gets to scrambling this week and there's a broken play or a jump ball in alliance, Okiki's 6'3", and he can go get it. Officially, though, as the resident defensive guy on the podcast, I'd be remiss if I did not acknowledge Mount Union's 11 sacks against Albright a week after having 12 against St. Lawrence. And I think they're going to come after Callahan this week, although the Wesley quarterback runs a lot of plays designed for him to get rid of it quickly. When nothing's open, he holds it, buys himself some time, and usually that works out great for Wesley, but who knows if it will against Mount Union's defense. Anyway, three defensive linemen had two and a half sacks each against Albright, and that's scary when the sacks are coming from the down linemen and not from blitzing safeties and linebackers. Tom Lally has six sacks in two playoff games. Mike Ferda, one of the guys who had two and a half sacks, he used to be a Mountain Union wide receiver. Mike Vidal is one of several Mountain Union players from Florida, and they're all part of a relentless rush at the backbone of a great defense. And since we're this deep into the playoffs, I can start acknowledging the Purple Raiders greatness because soon they'll start running into some challenges on their level. And so for that, I'll uh, I'll let them have this week's game ball. Uh, what
1: we do in this podcast is we're going to break down each of the eight games. Uh, we'll give a real quick recap of them, and then uh, Keith and I each have a takeaway, kind of uh, our per- our take on you know how this game affects our uh, feeling of the bracket going forward and that sort of thing so starting in um well I don't, it's not a, it makes it be not necessarily in the topest topmost left or is it the top left in the bracket it doesn't matter uh it was topmost in uh, my mind in a lot of cases and uh, in the minds of uh, the eight thousand people who showed up for it and that's the uh, st thomas st john's game Uh, St. Thomas uh, they ran 41 of the first 50 plays from scrimmage in the game and for all intents and purposes it really seemed like the game was over at that point Uh, didn't look like the Tommies schemed this game up any differently than they did the first meeting or at least if they had a secondary scheme they never needed to go to whatever plan b they had on offense Um, you know uh, if uh, the at the end you look at uh, Nick Martin getting hurt uh, right before the first half uh St. John's was already down twenty-nine to twenty-seven at that point. I don't see that being a particularly uh, big factor there, and obviously, you know, Sam Sura struggled for yards again, uh, as he uh, as he did against uh, St. Thomas earlier. Um, Keith, another game in which uh, very similar to the first game, including the final score and the final outcome, in that as well.
2: Yeah, and I thought, to be quite honest, it was a pretty tough second-round game for the Johnnies. So my takeaway is kind of. You know, as much as the playoffs are about winning, winning it all and, you know, trying to get to Salem and all that, um, you know, the Johnnies would have had to go through the Tommies at some point. So if if your thought is to get to Salem, you know, that that's fine. But, you know, as much as the playoffs are about winning it all, they're also about playing new teams and scaling new mountains. And and both of the Johnnies' playoff opponents were teams that they'd already played in the regular season. So Johns Hopkins, they exited the playoffs knowing exactly where they stood. Thomas Moore did the same thing. Huntington, Cortland State, they all got that satisfaction from knowing they gave one of the best teams in the country their, their best shot. I don't know if we ever got that answer for St. John's. 10 wins and two 20-point losses to St. Thomas this season. you know, Who knows how good these Johnnies actually are or would have been if they'd been allowed to leave Minnesota for one of their postseason games?
1: Yeah, the rhetoric about this game, at least from the St. John's fans, was that the last time these two teams met, well, the team was just distracted by ESPN being on campus, wasn't that all that focused and all that would go away. Um, you know, not the case. Uh, I wasn't at this particular game, but it sure reads pretty similar to the first meeting and uh, from the people I've talked to, it uh, comes off as pretty similar to the first meeting as well. St. Thomas is just measurably better this year, um, you know. Uh, I I thought uh, St. Thomas was good from having seen the first Tommy Johnny game, and this result definitely cements that in my mind. Good enough to go to Salem for sure, uh, especially with the teams having to come play them in St. Paul. By the way, uh, as I was typing this part of uh, my rundown on the phone on the plane last night, autocorrect for Sam Sura is Sam Aura. His aura not quite enough to make a difference on Saturday though. <laughs>
2: No, uh, not at all. I mean, the big numbers that jump off the uh, the box score for this one, St. Thomas outrushed St. John's 243 to 49, and they held the ball for 37 minutes in this one. So fairly dominant performance, as we've grown accustomed to from the Tommies this season. That Jordan Roberts
1: he's pretty good. You might have read about that in D3Football.com or on the front page of the sports section of USA Today. Uh, to talk about the Wabash-Thomas Moore game, we're joined by D3Football.com senior editor Adam Turr, who covered the game in Crawfordsville, Indiana, and you had an amazing game to cover there, Adam.
0: I did. It was probably the most wild finish of any game I've seen, and not just the final play, but, but the final minute of regulation as well. Wabash did everything a team does to lose a game. They turned the ball over six times. They gave up a long punt return for a touchdown. Uh, there were some other special teams miscues. Uh, Connor Rice did not play a very strong game, uh, by his own admission. Uh, the Wabash quarterback there were some questionable decisions. You know, the fourth and two a couple times didn't hand the ball off to Mason Zurich, which surprised a lot of people. Uh, they went into halftime down twenty-seven to thirteen and just chipped away in the second half. Uh, the defense played like the Wabash defense that we saw during the regular season and got aggressive. Uh, there was a change of quarterback for Thomas Moore. Jensen Gebhardt had a strong first half, got injured, injured his knee late in the first half. Brennan Kuntz comes in, throws a touchdown on his first pass. Uh, but in the second half, he was under duress the entire time. Thomas Moore was sacked six times. They'd only been sacked 17 times all season before this game. Uh, and Ethan Bursch with the play of the game, obviously in overtime with the fumble recovery for a touchdown, uh, you know, Wabash just kept chipping away and they stuck with their game plan and, and what had got them to this point, And that was just feeding Zurich and working the ball down the field. But, you know, it was one of those weird, weird games. You know, the, the touchdown that got them in the game was a fourth and 14 play. Rice is scrambling for his life, avoids a couple different potential sacks, chucks it up into the end zone, and Zurich's there to haul it in 31 yards down the field. It wasn't a design pass play to him by any means. And then the two point conversion after that, Uh, Oliver Page, who midway through the season was a backup quarterback, switched to wide receiver, makes a great grab in the back of the end zone, gets a toe down. uh, And that's eight points right there to get them back in the game. Uh, Then Andrew Tutsi adds his fourth field goal to tie things up with 55 seconds left. And even after that, it got really bizarre. Thomas Moore gets the ball throws, uh, starts marching down the field, comes throws an interception. It looks like that's going to be a pick six game winner Uh, penalty calls it back. So now Wabash has the ball, all the momentum. They've just tied the game, just got an interception. Looks like they're going to drive down the field and win it. Well, then Rice throws an interception. Thomas Moore gets a long return. Johnny Lammers with the pick uh, and he runs it back. It looks like they're going to be in position for a a Tommy Budke, Budke field goal attempt to possibly win the game. That interception return flags on the play. It gets called back. Uh, And then Kunz has a chance for a Hail Mary with uh, five seconds left. Doesn't even have a chance to get a good throw off down the field. So we go into overtime. Wabash wins the toss, elects to play defense first. With the way their defense had performed in the second half, that was a no-brainer. And five plays later, after Thomas Moore gets one first down, uh, the sack, uh, Kunz fumbles again. And Bursch picks it up and races down the field. And it was, I mean, the environment there was, I mean, people were stunned. The players were stunned. You know, even on the field after the game, uh, the Wabash players, I was down on the sideline uh, for that last play. And even the Wabash players were, you know, what the bleep just happened, asking each other. They were stunned. They were amazed. It was it was tough. I mean, it took the Thomas Moore players uh, several minutes to come to grips with what had just happened. Uh, it was it was bizarre. And of course, in the playoffs, the NCAA has the 10 minute cooling off period before uh, people can come on the field after the game. Uh, otherwise, I think you would have seen the, the Wabash fans storm the field. Um, it was it was just one of those games that anyone involved, anyone who played in it, coached in it, witnessed it, was there is not going to forget for a long, long time
1: i'm I'm watching that game. Uh, the the uh, the two point conversion to make it a three point game happens during halftime of the uh, wheaton whitewater game. so i'm I'm paying attention to that game actually watching it. Uh, and then as uh, overtime comes along, it's like, well, I have to just kind of put aside the game that's in front of me. So I'm watching it. I know the video's on a little bit of a delay, but i I think to speak to what you said about everybody being stunned is I'm watching the video. I'm standing sitting here trying to process it. I'm writing out all those initials: G W F R T D O T. You know, right? All four of those things, or whatever. Um, and even then, it was after that that everybody else started tweeting about it. People who had been at the game must have been uh, just as stunned and not really sure how to process that as well. And I was thinking, it's like I just have to remind myself: the game is over, right? There's, I don't, I didn't see any flags. That's it, right? Game's done.
0: And that was exactly it's so funny from a distance, watching over the internet, you captured exactly how people felt there. Everyone was kind of looking around. I mean, the Wabash fans were cheering, obviously, for a touchdown. But even then, after you know, he didn't get caught by by you know the linemen that were chasing him,, uh, there were no flags down. But even then, people were just kind of looking around, like, okay, what's next? You know, yeah. what, what do we do next? The officials actually came out uh, and announced that's the end of the game. you know f- fumble touchdown that's the end of the game. And until there was a, an official announcement over the PA system, there was a little bit of hesitation from everybody there. Like, what do we do next?
1: Yeah, yeah imagine if they had to—they made Wabash line up and then uh, Thomas Moore's only hope was to try to pick six or uh, fumble return for that. Right. Just take three knees or, I don't know, punt it out of bounds. Uh, you know, just whatever <laughs> you could do to end that pos- that uh, possession that wouldn't have meant anything. The uh, Exactly. The other question, of, uh, so the, the question in my mind coming out of this game then is, you know, how good is Wabash? Um, you know, definitely dominant against the teams they've played, right? Uh, ran through the North Coast. Uh, they played two They played two games, one in the regular season against the ODAC. They played one against the Presidents. Those are conferences that are, you know, a combined uh, 28 and 38 in the playoffs since the automatic bid era began. Neither of them in the top 10 in playoff results. And next week, they're going to finally face a team from a, a power conference in St. Thomas from the MIAC. Uh, how do you think they stack up?
0: Uh, well, I mean, they're a team that, if you look at their strengths, they're built for this time of year. You know, they have a dominant defense and a dominant run game, and any football coach will tell you that's what wins games in November and into December. So, if they stick with what they do best, I think they're they're you know positioned well to to challenge some of these more power conference teams. Um, you know, they didn't play their best game. You know, they can't turn the ball over six times, let alone two or three times next week, or they're going to fall behind and struggle. And it was interesting. You know, I asked coach Rayburn, you know, how did your team respond playing from behind? Cause they hadn't really, I mean, they'd only allowed the most points they'd given up in a game all year was 18, gave up 27 and a half. Uh, and, you know, they never, they played from behind a few times, but not that late in the game and not by that much. Uh, so to show what they showed in the second half that they could stick to that game plan and stick to their strengths they didn't have to abandon anything and they didn't have to you know, go away from what they do best. I think that showed that they can compete with anybody uh, that's left in this tournament just because they have the defense and they have the running game. And, you know, Connor Rice, despite his struggles yesterday, showed that he can make some throws and he's elusive enough uh, under pressure that he can you know, help his team uh, move the chains. But, you know, you have Mason Zurich and you have that defense. Uh, you can stick around long enough with anybody. And as they showed yesterday, if you stick around long enough, something good might happen.
1: Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, I, we may have already previewed this, uh, already, uh, the, the answer to this next question, but, uh, Keith and I are doing a, a takeaway from each game, which is basically how does this game or how did the, re, uh, the outcome from this game affect your perception of the bracket and for the playoffs this year. So obviously since you were, uh, um, you know, you were there, uh, you were covering the game for us, I give you a first crack at a uh, takeaway for the, uh, Wabash Thomas Moore game.
0: Yeah, the takeaway is that, well, you know, th- there's a popular mantra in Crawfordsville, and I'm sure you've heard before, and I'm sure uh, our friend Ryan Tips is, is wow. repeating it uh, ad nauseum this weekend uh, of Wabash always fights. And yeah, that they could not have lived up to that anymore in this game of always fighting until the very end. Uh, and they never gave up and they found a way to win. And, and my takeaway is, you know, they they were on the ropes. You know, Thomas Moore was in control even through the third quarter, yeah. you know, going into the fourth quarter. Thomas Moore led by 11 points and really the whole tone of the game seemed that they were, they had Wabash's number. They were going to win the game. Uh, So for Wabash to come back like they did in the fourth quarter and in overtime, um, you know, they they prove something that I think, you know, the way they dominate all year, you know, that's impressive. Like you said, you know, they, they dominate their conference, but when a team dominates all year, there's still some questions of how they're going to handle adversity, how they're going to handle playing an offense that averages 50 points a game and, and to, shut down Thomas Moore's offense in the second half the way they did and forced the turnovers they forced and the sacks that they generated, uh, I think showed that they can beat almost anybody. And I say almost because their trip next week is against the team that's probably looked the best this postseason. Um, You know, no slight to Mount Union, but against the competition that we've seen, I think St. Thomas looks like the most dominant team in the bracket right now. So Wabash has a big challenge ahead of itself.
1: All right, Adam, thanks for joining us. We appreciate your insight and we uh, look forward to uh, what's coming up this week.
0: All right.
1: My pleasure. Uh, One of my first thoughts on this uh, for my takeaway is uh, Thomas Moore's 2015 reputation is hanging entirely on what Wabash does here, which is kind of what you were talking about with St. John's uh, uh, about 10 minutes ago, Keith. Um, you know, does uh, do they play St. Thomas well? Do they even win? Does Wabash? That's a huge boost for Thomas Moore. Uh, meanwhile, what Adam said, absolutely right. Wabash cannot afford to make that many mistakes on Saturday at St. Thomas. This is pretty well uncharted territory. Not that Wabash hasn't been to the quarterfinals or faced a purple power, um, but you know, Whitewater, Mount Union, those are much shorter trips. This is a different kind of uh, a different kind of trip to put together in my mind.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't know if I articulated it. Well, the first time, but I think part of the cool part about the playoffs, and this is something that say like Cortland State got to do by going out to Linfield is playing these other teams that you only hear and read about and measuring yourself against them. And even when you lose, and this is Johns Hopkins kind of talked about this a little bit. they, They did. They lost on Saturday, but they got the satisfaction of knowing they gave somebody else basically you know they played a one possession game they gave them their, their best shot for uh, for Wabash you know obviously they also were in a one possession game and, and and Thomas Moore gave them their best shot really Thomas Moore controlled that game early on they led 27-13 uh, into the second half of that one and to be honest uh, the little giants haven't played terribly well in the first half of either playoff game and it's a good thing that Wabash always fights because the competition always gets tougher as we get Further into these into the postseason, uh, I thought it was interesting that the Little Giants they they actually have crashing through their own glass ceiling and joining the D3 Elite as one of their goals. Whereas we'll talk about a little bit later, Johns Hopkins they're a little more content to to win their conference and go down swinging, you know, second third round of the playoffs. Uh, Wabash would be a great program, I think, to have make that breakthrough because it got a great coach, great fans, fun alumni, plenty of folks uh, from from Wabash that we here at the site get along with. Uh, but, you know, you you want these opportunities to, to play the best teams in D3, and now it's, uh, it's put up or shut up time.
1: The other thing we'll do in the course of this podcast is uh, give our first look at uh, breaking down the quarterfinal game. So looking ahead to Wabash at St. Thomas, I definitely know one person who's looking forward to this game. Uh, Let me pull something out of my email. The subject line, uh, and I read this on my phone first yesterday afternoon, was uh, the game I've awaited for 30 years. Uh, You guys at D3Football.com were correct. The Wabash game today was a hell of a game to watch, a real nail-biter. It looks like the Little Giants will finally be traveling to St. Paul next weekend. I couldn't be happier. See you tomorrow, and he says see you tomorrow because tomorrow was Sunday. That email is from my parish priest, is a Wabash graduate in my uh, Minneapolis parish, so I know Michael Redding will be there with bells on, uh, maybe a collar, uh, probably not full vestments, but uh, that's gonna be that's gonna be fun for him, and uh, like Keith said before, fun for Wabash fans. Uh, And we already got Adam's take on this game. He's definitely right that the two teams are very similar in terms of their strengths. What I wonder about is uh, actual strength uh, and size. Up front on offense, St. Thomas is uh, averaging about uh, 20 pounds bigger per man for starters. Uh, And and we know size isn't the be-all and end-all on the offensive line, but it's a good starting point for the the discussion. And yeah, no, Wabash can't afford to turn the ball over six times or, or probably even half that amount versus St. Thomas. On the opposite side, uh, the Tommies have to come out focused, ready to go against a good team when there aren't eight thousand people in the stands, uh, and they, you know, they have to game plan this week for a team that they don't know nearly as well as they know St. John's.
2: Pat, I think you're you're right on it, though that that size matters when you play as well as St. John's, as St. Thomas does. Boy, they're going to kill me for that one. Um, <laughs> the 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 Tommies, I mean, they use their size well. Obviously, they 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 um. Defensively up front, uh, the way they've they've utilized the running game this year, utilizing uh, extra tight ends uh, when they when they need to go big against a team, I think they just the things that that they do with their size certainly makes that a, um, a one of their big advantages. But I actually think stylistically, this is the best matchup among the remaining teams for Wabash. Uh, they obviously have to play a cleaner game against St. Thomas. You know the but 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 the Tommy's little giants could be the first true ugly game of the playoffs like 24-10 or 17-13 late it could be the first one we have this season it could end up with could i guess end up with a with a bunch of points on the board too um, the weather in st paul on saturday is projected to be a balmy 39 that's balmy for december in minnesota yeah, anyway yeah we'll take that um, but, but neither of these teams would have a problem going to a running game slash good defense slash take care of the ball if, uh, if the weather got ugly. Wabash has already played one snow game this, uh, this postseason. Both of these teams draw well. They both have boisterous crowds, but it's an eight-hour drive, so it'll be pretty much Tommy's only uh, in the stands on Saturday. And with school back in, we'll see how well they can fill O'Shaughnessy.
1: Moving on to the Linfield-Cortland game, and this was not quite the game we expected with uh, Cortland making a tight, a 14-10 game at the half, primarily on the strength of a 54-yard touchdown pass from Stephen Ferrara to Jake Smith. And Sam Riddle, one of the top couple of quarterbacks in Division Three, went out with an injury before halftime for Linfield. And we actually got 23 minutes into this podcast before mentioning that. Uh, Tom Connect isn't a bad QB himself as the backup, and he acquitted himself well in the second half of that game. Meanwhile, the Wildcats picked off Ferrara three times and allowed just 53 yards on 40 rushing plays, and Linfield pulled out to a 38 to 10 lead before Cortland scored a couple of TDs in the final two minutes to make it a 38 22 final. My takeaway, well, you know, shoot. Without Sam Riddle, and whether that's just for this week or for multiple weeks, this is still a really good team, but there are only really good teams left in this playoff, so. The Wildcats could survive a week, perhaps, but this is a national title contender with Riddle in and healthy. A big blow for Linfield
2: losing him. Yeah. The reports were that he was on crutches in the second half on the sideline. Um, and after the game, it, there, there weren't any definitive word whether he's going to play or not next week, but you got to assume that, that crutches are a pretty big deal. Um, we did have a, a, a reference to a big injury early in the open, but we tightened up the, we tightened up the early part of the podcast <laughs> and, and that part missed it. So we do think Sam Riddle's injury is lead worthy news, even yeah. though we failed to, uh, to get it in the lead of the podcast today. Um, my, my takeaway, uh, in addition to the riddle injury, they also lost one of their leading tacklers in the second half. I, I listened to that driving back from Johns Hopkins. Uh, love that in two thousand fifteen, you can just plug in your phone to your car radio, hit the you know the, the link on on the site, and boom, you got audio, you got video, whatever you need. So I listened to the second half of that game. They lost uh, Keanu Yamamoto. Who's their rover um, a big tackle a big tackler for them uh, and that could be a big blow as well injury updates tend to be pretty hard to come by in in d3 and you know we know a couple of folks out in mcminnville and out in oregon so we might be able to keep you updated by the time we make our picks on friday uh, but these are injuries that might tilt the title tide
1: whoa <laughs> <laughs> you're uh, well first i agree secondly uh I was not expecting that kind of alliteration at uh, 12.43 in
2: the morning. Well, Tom, connect, uh, filled in well for Riddle. And uh, it wasn't easy to tell if it took a while for Linfield to pull away because Cortland State was pretty good, which I think is likely, or that Linfield struggled a bit with the quarterback switch, which came in the second quarter. Uh, I still think uh, Mary Harden-Baylor-Linfield is the game of the week next week, no matter which quarterback plays, with it being the fourth time these two national powers have met one of the matchups, of course, came last year in uh, in the second round. I believe that was a three-point game. Another one came in the 2004 Stagwall. That was a seven-point game. Decided in about the final five minutes. And the other was a 2009 second-round playoff game. After Mary Harden-Baylor had won in the first round at Central of Iowa, they got blown out at Linfield.
1: Yeah, uh, decided even later than that. There was a, that was a key sack on... The Mary Harden-Baylor quarterback, as uh, they were driving, trying to uh, come back and uh, score and win that game. Uh, the last game that, that didn't involve Mountain Union or Whitewater. Yeah, or I guess just the last game that didn't involve Mountain Union. Um, moving down the bracket to the Mary Harden-Baylor-Huntington game. Uh, Let's see. In this game, Huntington struck first and uh, then perhaps surprisingly they didn't go away, at least not until the final few minutes of the game. Uh, The Hawks put together two more long scoring drives, including a a 70-yard drive that cut the lead to 29-23 on the first play of the fourth quarter. But uh, Zach Anderson had a pretty good day at quarterback for the crew with 371 yards of total offense, whereas Blake Jackson fumbled twice and then came out because of injury. But uh, UMHB put this game away in the fourth quarter. Huntington had just 26 yards of total offense in that quarter with a three and out and an interception among their three drives, and and that was all she wrote. So for me, the final score in that game, 43-23. For me, my takeaway is it had to be a little disconcerting for crew fans on Saturday. So Huntington returns that opening kickoff for 38 yards, and they put together a nice game opening drive to take the lead. Uh, Then with UMHB up 26 16, entering the third quarter. Anderson throws an interception on the first play from scrimmage. Huntington bailed them out with a bad snap on a punt attempt on that ensuing drive, but it could have been worse. Uh, I like to think myself as a bit of an optimist, but even at a 20-point win, that doesn't look particularly great for UMHB.
2: Yeah, I thought it looked pretty good for for Huntington, Huntington, to be quite honest. Um, My honest thought was that they they didn't really belong in round two, that if they would have matched this bracket up without the 500-mile travel restrictions that have been in place for years and that we all kind of accept as as part of the deal here in the D3 uh, playoffs, that um, that the first round game, the matchups would have been Harden-Simmons at Hendricks and Huntington would have played uh, at Mary Harden-Baylor in the first round. And so then this week's game would have been the Mary Harden-Baylor-Harden-Simmons game. So basically, Harden-Simmons deserved to be playing this week. Huntington did not, but I thought the way Huntington played showed that uh, they they belonged you know, in the second round or in the final sixteen of this tournament. And uh, yeah, you know, to, to keep it to a to a you know, not only was it close early, Huntington got on the board early, uh, kept it close in the first half, but to keep it close well into the third quarter, into the fourth uh, before Mary harden Baylor really pulled away, I thought uh, I thought said a lot about that program.
1: In uh, triple take parlance, that would be surprisingly close. So uh, let's see, Linfield and uh, Mary Harden-Baylor advance looking ahead to that game. You know, from a big picture storyline standpoint, this game represents nearly a mirror image to the team's meeting in last year's playoffs, and Keith uh, quickly referenced that, but this time it's UMHB as the one lost team going on the road to face a top-five team with national title uh, aspirations. Uh, More specifically, though, about this game in particular, Tom Connect actually was the week one starter for the Wildcats back in 2014. Uh, you might remember that's a narrow win at Chapman, but Sam Riddle replaced him before the second quarter even started and and hadn't given up the job since. Now, the way Linfield has been playing this season, Connect has gotten a good amount of playing time, uh, and when I was out there to see them play Pacific, uh, he got a, a good amount of time in that game, and he looked pretty good. Um, But, you know, he hasn't been facing the uh, the likes of Tedrick Smith and John Isom and the kind of guys who that, uh, you know, Mary Harden-Baylor's going to be
2: throwing at him up front. Yeah, but at the at the same time, Players live for games like these. Uh, you know, Linfield's going to be real jacked up for this one, and, and Mary harden Baylor's going to be excited to go out to Oregon and uh, and try to get revenge after losing at at their place in the playoffs last season. So these two teams know each other pretty well, um, and I honestly think that you know we get we the, the quarterback injury is huge. It, it just is. But both of these teams are so sound uh, defensively. Uh, I think Linfield probably more so than Mary Hardin Baylor. In, in most years, we'd, we'd we'd probably praise the Mary harden Baylor defense, but I think Linfield's really sound defensively this season. And uh, and the thing we've seen Lin- Linfield do before is that when they've they've had to deal with adversity, certainly last season's adversity much worse than than uh, this year's. If this year's ends up being having to play without Sam Riddle, uh, we've seen them, you know, be able to come together, have to play a big game, and, and to and to you know play well. As a team under tough circumstances. So, uh, you know, losing a quarterback is a big blow, but I don't think it will impact it will impact the game. But it, I don't I don't think it will it will um, keep it, you know, keep Linfield for, from suddenly not being competitive. And I, I thought uh, connect getting two and a half quarters or, or however much it was of play on Saturday also helped, too, because, that you know, you get your feet wet again.
1: Looking at the other side of the bracket, uh, the Mount Union-Albright game was uh, another typical Mount Union versus the East game as the Purple Raiders defeated the Lions 66-7. Keith already touched on the sacks, uh, and on offense, it was Logan Nemus Day with 185 yards and three touchdowns on the ground. Uh, The margin of victory there was uh, higher than any of us even predicted in triple take, mostly because Albright didn't keep the first stringers in to try to put points on the board in the end. Uh, As far as a takeaway from this game, I'm not sure there's a whole lot more to say uh, the last time mountain union wasn't in the semifinals was 1894. Uh, sorry. looks uh, like that's 1994. I misread my notes. Uh, but the purple Raiders continue
2: to be not particularly tested. Yeah. And there was a time where we were excited to have mountain union move to the so-called East bracket. And we're actually to the point now, we don't even call the brackets, you know, East, North, now, well, North, South, East, West, because they're they're Cause they're pro- not <laughs> right. Cause they're properly mixed up. And, and, uh, but what ends up happening is because because of where Mountain Union is located, they do get to play weaker teams than, uh, you know, St. Thomas, for instance, having to play St. John's in the second round. Mary harden Baylor had to play Hardin Simmons in the first round. Uh, Mountain Union, partially by virtue of how good they are, and partially by virtue of, of where they're located, they just they they just annihilate teams in the first couple of rounds. So we get excited to see them play Wesley in uh, in the quarterfinals, although. This particular um, Wesley team may not be the challenge that the, that the first two Wesley um, Mountain Union playoff meetings were, actually first three were pretty good games. Um, chatted with a couple of Wesley folks after the game at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore on Saturday, and, and they recalled a scrimmage with Albright uh, in the preseason that was fairly even. Albright also beat Salisbury, who beat Wesley. Uh, so if all these three teams are in the same ballpark, and Mount Union just did that to Albright, is there another route in the offing this coming week?
1: Yeah, that doesn't bode well for Wesley. Uh, I don't remember now how many Wesley Mount Union meetings there have been, but I, I remember a particular one that uh, that I was at. That was just last December, right? Um, that was not a particularly pretty one. Um, yes. Yeah. So it was seventy to nothing, and then zero to twenty-one. Is the way I remember it. Um, let's see, since you saw them play, go ahead and take us through the Wesley Johns Hopkins game.
2: Well, um, to, 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 quickly summarize it, basically the, the story of the first half is, um, Wesley's moving the ball and, and Joe Callahan through, uh, three interceptions in the first quarter. Uh, a couple of them, one, one, maybe one and a half bad decisions, uh, twice he threw kind of rolled out. To one way threw back across his body the other way, you know, the guy looks open for a half a second, but, uh, as coaches will say, and, and Mike dress said this in the, in the, um, jokingly in the, in the postseason, in the postgame press conference, he said, you know, never throw late down the middle across your body. It's like the, it's like the, the worst, uh, all the things co- quarterback coaches tell you never to do. So Callahan had a couple early interceptions, um, he actually had three early interceptions. The problem is John Ho- Johns Hopkins uh, didn't turn that into to points. Uh, they missed a field goal. They kicked one field goal. And um, basically, it, it was a 14-10 game late in the half. Wesley scores right before the half. And uh, that looked like that was going to be a big score because Hopkins, you know, by virtue of being at home and, and getting those turnovers, they had all the momentum in the first half, and, uh, and they go in down 21-10. Wesley uh, eventually builds a 42-24 lead uh, in that game. The two teams uh, you know, trade scores in the third quarter, and Hopkins is kind of a mirror image of, of what Wesley does offensively. Both teams, no huddle, spread the field. they got big wide receivers on the outside. They've got guys who can work the middle, uh, great quarterbacks. Uh, they can run the ball when they need to, and, and there's their read option, and then they're doing plays off read option. Um you know, run, run pass option plays, trick plays, all kinds of stuff. So both these teams uh, finally get the offenses going. Wesley's up 42-24, and uh, Hopkins starts to rally in, in the game. And, and, of course, you know, once once that home team, especially a really good offensive home team, uh, they get rolling, the, the The team in the lead feels that nervousness. So Hopkins rallies. Uh, they score to, to make it 42-37. They miss a two-point conversion that would have made it a three-point game. That ends up being pretty big. Wesley is salting the game away with a, with a methodical final drive when uh, Bryce Shade, one of their best offensive players, gets inside the five yard line and uh, and and just drops the ball. Uh, he caught he caught a so basically a, you know read fake and then they throw it like a, it's not a swing pass but they just throw it down the line of scrimmage to Shade who's lined up in the slot. Uh, he ca- he just caught that and uh, and was basically getting ready to kind of. Maneuver his way into the end zone, drop the ball, and Hopkins recovers on the four-yard line. And from there, it got wild. Hopkins drives down the field. Hopkins fumbles; they recover their own fumble. There's a penalty on that play. Um, it, it starts to, to, to get to the point where uh, you know Hopkins is methodically moving down the field, down by five. Where where like where you realize Wesley could actually lose this game, and uh, Wesley being, of course, um, for the past since about 2004, so the past now 11, 12 years, been a national power. Uh, Hopkins has taken a couple cracks at him and, uh, and kept those games close, but they, they haven't beaten them. So they they get to this point where they, they, they they basically have the momentum in the game. All they need to do is score. Uh, they get to a fourth and one on their own 13 yard line with about a minute and a half left. Wesley burns a timeout. Hopkins goes for it. They run the ball. Uh, router Kane comes off the edge, um, blitzing. He kind of just bends it down the line grabs Stuart Walters from behind and uh, and doesn't allow him to get the one yard um, one yard gain. And uh, the the crazy thing about that is they talked about it in the post game is Wesley thought it was going to be a pass on fourth and one. And uh, so Wesley, you know, they brought in their tall defensive lineman. And be, because of the way Hopkins had, had worked the ball over the middle, they thought they were going to complete a pass over the middle. Hopkins chose to run it. They didn't get it. Wesley had to get a first down to uh, to kill the clock. And uh, and and it was, a you know, a great game back and forth. Um, I, and it really stood out to me, I, I thought, the way – I, I don't know if the mature, maturity is the right word, but the way Johns Hopkins players and, and Coach Margraff accepted the loss after the game. They basically said there, there is no hump that they were trying to get over in, in the postseason. There's really not. I know, I know you think that. I know people write about that. But at, at the same point, our goal is to win the Centennial Conference Championship. That's what we're built for. Uh, and then, then, you know, after that, let's line it up and see what we got. So, again, we, we joke around about it. But I always say this is extra football, bonus football. When you get to the playoffs, only one team's going to finish their season with a win. We, you kind of know that going in. So, uh, you know, I, I give our guys some weird talks. But it, it's, coming up, you got to want to play. you wanna, you got to want to come up with bases loaded and two outs. And that's what the playoffs get to at that point. You know you're a good player when you want to be in those situations. And, you know, I think our guys, they, I, our guys relished being in a, a one-possession game today. didn't work our way. And a lot of worse things happen in life all over the place. It's, we lost a football game. It's tough. It's tough right now. But uh, but to be in that position, to have that type of thrill, uh, there's only 16 teams that have that opportunity this weekend. So, you know, I think, I'm think hoping they, they enjoy that. They won't enjoy it today. But, but I'm sure they'll appreciate it sometime in the future. They cared about testing themselves against one of the best teams in the country. They did that. They played an either-or game. You know, it came down to one possession. It didn't go their way, and they weren't happy about it. Um, but, you know, the result, they— is, is they gave their best against one of the best teams in the country and they can live with it.
1: Well, as far as my takeaway goes, uh, takeaway goes, Keith, the, definitely another great game in, in this series, uh, rivalry, but if getting to the next level isn't on job Johns Hopkins' to-do list, then I, I guess I don't know what to make of it.
2: Yeah, and I don't know if, I'll, I don't want to misstate what they're what they're saying there. I mean, you heard Well, no, more, I mean,
1: uh, we heard it, right?
2: Right, he said it in, in his own words that they, they consider the playoffs to be bonus football, whereas, you know, Wabash, on the other hand, kind of a a program in a similar place where it kind of kind of wins its conference uh, just about every season, can get into the playoffs, win a playoff game or two, but can't beat the elite teams. Um, I, I think that the sense I got is just that Johns Hopkins, as a program, doesn't beat itself up over that. You know, why can't we get over the hump? They 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 don't stress that. They they kind of win their win their conference and then everything after that is 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 just a joy and, and a good experience and it's fun and we want as competitors we want to test ourselves against the best but um but you know I don't I, I guess they're just not under any delusions of of grandeur that they can you know that what Johns Hopkins football is is going to be the same thing as what Mount Union or Wisconsin Whitewater football is
1: no but I guess there's uh, there's lots of room in between them though right i mean there's uh, there's plenty of room to be a uh, um a Hobart that can get to the quarterfinals of St. John Fisher and still, you know, get, get to a a next level, if not the ultimate level.
2: Yeah. I thought actually uh, for Hopkins, that's almost, they're like a, a role model for, for a lot of these middle teams in D three, where you can, you can probably, your goal can be to win your conference, to beat your rival, to get into the playoffs and win a game. And, and, you know, you can do that without sacrificing whatever the values of your program are. And, you know, you see Hopkins do it, you see Washington League get into the playoffs. you know it kind of makes you wonder, I, I know I mentioned this way too much, but you know the Nescat could certainly you know send its champion in and, and kind of see how they do at the end of the season because thats that's basically all, all Johns Hopkins is saying. They're not they're not sacrificing um, you know the, the student athlete experience. they' uh, they' they're kind of living, they're enjoying and soaking it all up.
1: Yeah, nor are they uh, cheapening the reputation of an academically elite institution to do so. Although I have to say, Keith, uh, I don't know where we would fit a, a NESCAC team into the bracket these days. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a little less urgent on getting the NESCAC teams into the playoffs right now. Um, why don't you talk us through the Wesley Mountain Union uh, game? Let's give us a, a look ahead there.
2: Yeah, well, I, I mentioned earlier when we talked about the the 23 sacks that Mount Union has so far in the postseason that they're going to probably come after Joe Callahan. And, and in addition to that pressure, I thought the Wolverines' corners had really active days against Johns Hopkins and uh, and will probably be facing a different caliber of athlete next week in Alliance. And, and I guess by active days, I mean uh, they made some plays and they got some plays made on them, but they got thrown out a lot. Um, And and part of that, I think, is by design. Wesley trusts its corners to single up. Um, Mount Union's going to throw more than two receivers at him, so a lot of guys are going to have to play a lot of uh, man coverage. The safeties are going to have to get involved next week. The problem is the folks around the Wolverines don't think that this is their best defense in in this dozen-or-so-year run as a national power, and they gave up 70 last season with a defense that was ostensibly better. So Wesley goes to Alliance as maybe a bigger underdog than ever. But they have a great quarterback in Joe Callahan and uh, Mike Drass, who who is the head coach and runs the defense, and Chip Knapp, who, who runs the offense. They've seen Mount Union four times now and, uh, and, and will try a different game plan, or at least they should try a different game plan than last season and see where it gets them.
1: Moving on to the uh, next bracket down, the uh, bottom right or the fourth bracket if you're looking at uh, a different uh, style printout. Um, And we'll talk about the Oshkosh-Ohio Northern game. Uh, This is a game in which Ohio Northern had some chances early on and didn't capitalize on them. Uh, The Polar Bears missed a 36-yard field goal on their first possession, then scored on their second time down the field to tie the game at 7. But even though Dylan Hecker fumbled on the Titans' next play from scrimmage, Ohio Northern was unable to do anything with the great field position that got handed, and they went 4-and-out at the Titans' 28-yard line. Oshkosh scored twice more before halftime, got the ball first and scored again uh, to open the third quarter. Uh, Will Fried replaced Ricardo Johnson, a quarterback for Ohio Northern, didn't do much better. They switched back and forth and meanwhile Oshkosh cruised to the 42-7 to win. And my takeaway out of that is uh, this is pretty much exactly what you would expect from the champion of the winningest playoff conference over the past 16 years against the runner-up of the second-best uh, playoff conference. Since the t- start of the 20- 2009 playoffs, uh, the Wyak is 37-5 and in the postseason, and uh, that includes Oshkosh's run to the national semifinals in 2012. And uh, again, although I-, I think we've said this in the past, they kind of proved that uh, that was not a one-year wonder, not a fluke. They're back in uh, back in the quarterfinals this time around.
2: Yeah and and if if we do get a chance to uh to get uh to have uh Wisconsin Oshkosh hang around a little bit longer I think you're going to get to know Pat Cerrone and and uh, some of the folks around that program and that they're pretty good they're pretty fun program to be around I think that they'll uh they'll be impressive to get to meet but it's kind of weird because we're so used to having these same names and they're they are even though they were here in 2012 they are a little bit of the outlier the unknown and uh, and, and that's that kind of makes them interesting but because they they beat whitewater and because they won the WIAC, um, they're they're being taken very seriously as, as a championship contender you know my takeaway from uh, from that result because um, because it was such a, a dominant, um game by uh, by the titans against the polar bears is now uh, now wisconsin oshkosh and Mount union who could stand in one another's way uh you know could could block each other from the stag bowl i guess around from now uh they now they have a common opponent ohio northern lost 51-7 to the purple raiders and that game was 51-0 i think until 14 seconds were left and uh and they lost 42-7 to the titans on saturday
1: Uh, The final game, the final second-round game uh, in the bottom right-hand corner of the bracket is uh, Wheaton hosting Wisconsin-Whitewater, and that's where I was on Saturday. Uh, And it was a good game, maybe not the nail-biter I expected when I made the trip to Chicago, but a good game nonetheless, and one where Wheaton had plenty of chances. Uh, Whitewater fumbled three times in the first quarter, including Jordan Ratliff doing so on his first two carries of the game, Uh, but Wheaton didn't come up with any of those loose balls. Uh, Not for lack of trying, though. On one of them, tight end Tony Gamina fumbled a ball that was headed out of bounds. Adam Danzil, who's the uh, stud linebacker for the Thunder, tried to save it from going out of bounds. Kind of basketball style, you know, tossing it or batting it back into the field. But was called for illegal batting, Um, and uh, Whitewater held on to the football there. Uh, High-scoring first half. And uh, Wheaton had cut the lead to 21-14 late in the second quarter, thanks in part to a couple of big passes, one to Luke Thorson and uh, one to running back Sola Olataju. But Whitewater came right back. Chris Nelson hit some big plays to Joe Wirth and to Marcus Hudson. And then Wheaton misplayed the ensuing kickoff, and Whitewater ended up partially blocking the ensuing punt, getting good field position, and tacking on a field goal to make it 31-14 at the break. And I think I made that all one sentence. So I apologize to Mrs. Reese, my uh, 7th and 8th grade English teacher. Uh, She would be making me uh, diagram that sentence right now. That would never have flown at USA Today uh let's see thunder hit a big play to start the third quarter uh, thorson caught a similar pass to the one he had earlier in the game but whitewater got the stop on third and one and then again on fourth and two uh the thunder only managed a field goal the rest of the game and whitewater won it 31 to 17 uh, my takeaway, first of all, before I get to the, uh, the actual takeaway, this is another one of those games and, and they come up every postseason where our poll disagreed with the, the AFCA top 25 and our poll was once again the more accurate one. Uh, we had Whitewater ranked ahead of Wheaton 5 versus 6 or the coaches poll had Wheaton number 4 and Whitewater number 8. Uh, aside from that, though, this was a day in which all the bounces seemed to go the Warhawks way. Uh, and I have to say Whitewater's looking pretty good right now, especially uh, the quarterback Chris Nelson. He made a bunch of good decisions on Saturday. Uh, looked a lot better than uh, when I saw him earlier in the season against Morningside. Um, yeah. Meanwhile, you know Wheaton not particularly overmatched, which is better than how the CCIW teams have uh, have played against Whitewater in the past. Uh, looking back through old brackets again, uh, just in the last couple of weeks, uh, a forty-two to seven really jumped out uh, when uh, Illinois Wesleyan lost at Whitewater, for example. Uh, and, and one more thing out of this game. I know this is like a, a triple takeaway, but uh, Kevin Bullis liked that the Thunder put uh, Whitewater's pass defense to the test, and, and Wheaton won a few of those. Here was his take on that after the game.
0: It was really good for us. I know today, defensively, I was really excited to see us get into kind of a throw thing. We've had a lot of teams that have been kind of run-orientated, and really the first half of the game was really in, in all reality. Um, it was good to see us have to execute in a pass situation, whether it's our pass rush, whether it's our coverages, and those things. And to see them improve during the course of a game, I felt like we got better
2: during the course of the game with some of the things we were trying to do with some of the coverages.
1: Uh, I figure Oshkosh will also be testing that group next week, Keith.
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, Oshkosh will uh, will definitely uh, take to the air a little bit. My takeaway is basically... The uh, the CCIW. When you think about this uh, this final eight that we have here, it's basically you know kind of the perfect final eight uh, because you got the Linfield, um, Mary harden Baylor game. You have the the Wyack rematch. You have Mount Union and Wesley going at it once more, and then you have St. Thomas and and, and Wabash too. And programs who have been—I I don't want to say up and coming because they've been up pretty high—but um, but you know, two programs that have been pretty good for uh, for several years now. But you have coaches who run great programs and think those may be two teams who break through. Well, what's the one thing that this final eight is missing? And and it's a CCIW team, pretty much. You know, between Wheaton, North Central, and occasionally one of the other teams in in that conference, there's almost always a team that either goes deep into the playoffs or, or is capable of going pretty deep into the postseason. And you know, for for Union to be um, for Union for Wheaton to be bounced uh, in the second round. I guess it's kind of like Harden Simmons being bounced in the in the first round of this postseason. These are two really good teams that maybe with a different draw you could see them uh, winning, advancing a little deeper. You know, if, if they if you had Wheaton in the spot where where Wabash is, you know, would Wheaton have have beaten Albion and and Thomas Moore? You know, most likely, maybe no guarantees, but uh, part of it. I know we can't get too caught up in that because the postseason, you know, you have to be good teams to advance, it. and that's just how it is. Wheaton certainly would, wouldn't complain about it, but it does seem that to me that um, that the CCIW, for whatever reason, no matter who they get matched up with, and it's often Mount Union or somebody from the OAC or someone from the WIAC or the MIAC, uh, the, the 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 champion can't really break through and uh, and that's a little bit I guess disappointing because it's one of the better conferences in Wheaton and North Central are, are consistently one of the best two teams uh, one of the best few teams in the country
1: it's uh, it's definitely a, a, a geographical nightmare for them they're sandwiched right in between Wisconsin Whitewater and Mount Union so often the road runs through uh, runs through one of them if not the other but you know I mean you look back at last year, Uh, Wheaton definitely had its chances uh, against John Carroll they lost that game 14-12 they had a a shot at a semi-desperation field goal at the end that could have won that game and maybe we're not having that exact conversation but still yeah um, they're just kind of stuck in between uh, and the way that the teams get moved around these days. Um, you know, this North team is facing a, a team that is more aligns with the East or more aligns with the West that's only an hour and a half away. It's, it's tough for them to uh, get bracketed differently, I guess.
2: Yeah, and it's not to say that, A, the CCIW hasn't had its breakthrough because a um, c- couple years ago, North Central was at Alliance, uh, could have won, very well could have won that uh, that semifinal game, gone to the stag ball. They lost 41-40. Um, and it's not to say that, you know... A- Everyone across the country doesn't have their own set of complaints, whether it's um, the Northwest Conference having to play itself, you know, in the first round or same thing with the American Southwest uh, for for the East teams. You know, they got to go through Mountain Union earlier than than other teams from the Westwood. The West is always loaded. So, I, you know, everyone has their own complaints. But but um, I, for Wheaton, for whatever reason, they're consistently one of the, the really good programs and they just haven't been able to break through.
1: Taking a look at our final national quarterfinal, it's uh, the one between Whitewater and Oshkosh. I I could definitely tell you Whitewater has been looking forward to this. Um, In fact, there was some concern uh, I was hearing before the game on Saturday that they were looking ahead to that game too early. But it it didn't really seem to have an effect. Whitewater's talked about how it has simplified the defensive approach since these teams first meeting, but it wasn't defense that kept him from winning the first time around. The development has to come on the offensive side and Marcus Hudson looking pretty good right now as a primary option among three decent receivers if Tony Kamina can hang on to the ball better at tight end uh, that will really help diversify the offense of course you know Oshkosh hasn't seemed particularly vulnerable either they gave up 28 points in that game at Platteville uh, they won by five touchdowns 63-28 and they've only allowed 32 points in the five games since this should be another really good game between those two teams
2: yeah, Pat, you talked about that pass defense getting tested. Well, the, the Titans are a pass happy group for sure. Uh, they they average almost ten yards per attempt and fifteen per completion. They average two hundred seventy one passing yards a game during the season, and they put up huge offensive numbers against everyone but Whitewater. And as we saw in the first Whitewater game, uh, you know, Oshkosh has the defense to go along with the offense if Brett Casper or Dalen Hecker isn't having a big day. The Titans aren't perennially elite, but I, th- I so I think they're getting overlooked a bit. And I didn't I didn't actually pick them to win. I, I picked Whitewater to win the rematch back when we did surprises and disappointments. So I'm as guilty as anyone. But so many of their key players are sophomores and juniors, so I, I don't know this, that this is their last run. I think Oshkosh may have a have a couple of runs in them. Um, there's some key seniors on that defense, though, and they've only let one team eclipse 14 points. All season, so I wonder if we're in for a repeat of that first Oshkosh Whitewater game, which was ten-seven, I believe. Yeah. Um, or, or something, you know, a little more high-scoring.
1: I guess it almost have to be more high-scoring, right? I, I don't know. I don't want to know what the odds were on it being less so. Um, we're still going to have a lightning round in this uh, in this podcast, uh, but before we go there. I want to drop in something from the uh, the Wheaton post game news conference uh, because you know there are a lot of uh, you know, we talked about a lot of uh, uh, teams in the first round kind of you know facing a little bit of reality and and, and getting drummed out of the playoffs. Not not the, so much the case on Saturday. There were a lot of good teams that ended their season on Saturday. And here is uh, Luke Thorson, the Wheaton wide receiver. This is my fifth year. I had the I was blessed to be able to come back from injury, Um, and just like coach just said, I mean, this is the best football team I've ever played on. Um, And it wasn't like a ride like we, you know, like you just said, it wasn't, we we expected to do that. There was no ride that we were getting on. It was, we had a goal that we set last year, came up short. This year we had the same goal, and we knew we could do it. Every single game we wanted to do it, knowing we can win the game. And the Whitewater came out, yeah, they have a lot of championships. But they got up just like we did this morning. They went to bed just like we did last night. There's not, they're not a super power team. They're a great football team. We are too. you know. And there, there's nothing we, – we didn't see it as a ride. We saw it as an honor and a blessing to be able to come out there and go 11-1 and back-to-back years. Not a lot of teams do that. Not a lot of teams do
2: that. I, Pat, I agree that, that this is around round two and certainly going to be the case in the quarterfinals and the semis where really good teams – Uh, end up they just have disappointing ends to really good seasons Um, you know Wheaton was one example I I felt like Johns Hopkins that was the best Hopkins team I've seen I thought they they like I said they matched and mirrored Wesley pretty well in in terms of what they do and and actually they had they had a few seniors on the offensive line and and a couple of guys on defense but uh, that most of that team's back next year including the quarterback Jonathan Germano so uh, Hopkins will be pretty good. And you look at the way they went out, it kind of bodes well for them to, you know, they're not just a top 15 team next season. They may be a team that could do some damage in the playoffs. Uh, I'm sure Adam Turr feels the same way about Thomas Moore, a team that pretty much controlled, you know, most of its game, except for the, 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 the final quarter and overtime against Wabash. So a, another really good team whose season ended and uh and you know you look again St. John's we I mentioned it earlier on the podcast already um you know who knows how good they the the Johnnies actually were this season because they they ran into just what great St. Thomas team two times uh, and, and you got to tip the hat a little bit uh, to Cortland state as well. Winning the empire eight, uh, winning, you know, a bunch of close games and then, then having to go, you know, the only, the one random trip that kind of doesn't make any sense. They get sent out to uh, to Oregon to play uh, one of the best teams in the country in, in Linfield and, and held up pretty well. So, you know, there are a lot of teams that, that have a lot to be proud of and, um, and coaches will say this after any playoff game in, in the, Post game press conference, they'll all say, you know, they they all recognize or most of them recognize that no matter how great their season is, only one team is really happy at the end of the playoffs. And that's sort of the bargain you make when you go into the postseason Um, is, is you know, that, you you know, most likely it's not going to end well for you. But but as a competitor, I think you have to know. Kind of where you stand against these other good teams, and so uh, that that's something that Wheaton, Johns Hopkins, Cortland State, St. John's, all these other teams can can at least hang their hats on that they that, that they don't they won't ever have to wonder you know what it, what it, what it would have been like if, if we'd played Wisconsin Whitewater if we'd played Wesley in their prime you know uh, they they got those results and uh, and they got that experience.
1: I am so good at lightning rounds. Moving on to the lightning round, uh, we don't have as much to talk about in this section. I, I will mention one thing: uh, you, if um, if you were a, if if you're a sports information director and you didn't nominate for all region uh, before the eight PM deadline on sunday uh you should be getting a nasty gram from your conference office about however we always have a one-day grace period for uh, this sort of thing so uh but hard cutoff is uh, at 8 p.m tonight and if you got your nominations in on time great you saved uh, us and your conference office a whole lot of work and as we talk about uh, our coverage coming up next week we're going to welcome back in adam tour who uh, as a senior editor has been assigning uh, these stories to uh, writers for the week uh, adam what do we have to look forward to in terms of uh, playoff storylines for uh, this week coming up
0: Uh, Well, as we talked about earlier, I was in Crawfordsville. I'm going to have a story on Wabash and uh, how they always fight and never give up. Uh, We're going to have a story on Mary harden Baylor. And senior quarterback Zach Anderson, you know, he's the third year starting for Mary Harden-Baylor. The last two postseasons, just heartbreaking losses uh, last year to Linfield, the year before that to Whitewater. Uh, See how motivated the Crusaders are to turn the corner and get over another big challenge against Linfield again this week. Uh, Speaking of Linfield, we're going to look at their situation, uh, try to get you some information on uh, who's going to be quarterbacking on Saturday, uh, regardless of what they're willing to, to tell us. We're going to have a story about Linfield and you know how they've been so dominant this season and how they're hoping to get farther than they have in past years. Uh, and we're also going to have a story from Josh Smith, who was at the Oshkosh game, uh, talking about the Titans and their season and how they're preparing for a rematch against the Warhawks.
1: All right, Adam, appreciate that. I, I also must say I noted in the um, in the postgame write up from Wabash uh, on game day that uh, they seem particularly motivated by something that we wrote in kickoff. So considering that kickoff uh, ran uh, what now a little over three months ago, I think I'm going to break that story. Uh, Wabash trying to join the elite, uh, break that out of the paywall so people will uh, will see it on the uh, on the website at some point this week as well.
0: Yes, it's always fun. Uh, Both teams there, actually, Thomas Moore and Wabash, both uh, have repeatedly mentioned that they are big readers of the site.
1: (laughs) And motivated. (laughs) For better or worse. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So uh, keep an eye out for those stories and others coming up uh, this week as we uh, get ready for the national quarterfinals. As long as we're on the topic of postseason and awards, uh, don't forget to vote for your favorite candidate for the Glardy Trophy between now and next Monday, December 7th. So spread the word on your campus uh, with your fellow alumni to come to D3Football.com and vote. Uh, Keith, we finally had a chance to uh, look uh, on the record at the uh, at the 10 finalists. Uh, some familiar names, obviously, because there were five uh, semifinalists that is that were juniors last year. so um you know a lot of those uh, folks came back around for a second year as semifinalists. but uh, what do you think about uh, how it looks so far?
2: Well, I think it's a, a pretty good group the you know my favorite thing about it, of course, is that it's not just quarterback with most numbers, running back or wide receiver with biggest numbers that you have a, a variety of positions represented um but but the thing that I really like is that, for, uh, in the case of a handful of these guys, uh, they're still playing, and so we get to take two, three, you know, playoff games into account. Um, before we, before we cast our final vote, Joe Callahan for Wesley is up for it. Alex Kocheff, the, the senior safety from Mountain Union, uh, he's up for the award. Jesse, Jesse Ramos, um, the Harden Simmons uh, player, he, we, you know, we saw him in the first round, uh, Lyman. Uh, the senior tackle David Simmit from uh, from St. Thomas probably won't be a whole lot we can draw from from watching him, but that whole but that whole line uh, they that St. Thomas line pretty much dominates. Uh, and then we saw uh, Matt Matt Snebold and uh, and Sam Sura play a couple of uh, playoff games. Dayton win as well. So basically, the the almost the whole field w- was in the playoffs. And I like that um, that as Gallardi voters, we get to uh, to factor in a few playoff games.
1: Yeah, so you guys as the fans, you have the 41st ballot all to yourselves. Uh, Keith and I are, are among the other 40 voters. And uh, the winner will be unveiled at uh, in Salem, Virginia at the Salem Civic Center on that Wednesday night before the Stag Bowl, which is uh, Wednesday, December 16th. So we'll have that broadcast for you on uh, D3sports.com. There will be the four uh, finalists will be named before that. Those will be the four people who will be making the trip to Salem and uh, who I'll be talking to. At least I assume so. I, I haven't been asked, but I haven't been told not to show up. Uh, <laughs> who I'll be uh, interviewing on the stage at the uh, Gordy Trophy ceremony. So uh, look forward to all that stuff. And, of course, we'll have tons of coverage from there. But we have a lot more coming, including the, uh, what Adam Tur uh, mentioned uh, just a couple of minutes ago. So keep an eye on D3Football.com all week. When award season comes, now all of a sudden the front page gets really busy. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 144 for the week of November 30th, 2015. Thanks for listening and uh, tune in for the rest of our coverage, as I mentioned, throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider giving it a rating in iTunes or your favorite podcast space. That will help uh, other Division three football fans find it. And thanks for following Division three football on d3football.com.